This is News Talk Today on the iHeartRadio Talk Network. Welcome to the show. I'm Graham Richardson, your host for today. Great to be here. Uh, I wish I was talking about something better than what we're seeing on the pitch today. Right now, Canada saying goodbye and thank you to the fans in Qatar. I don't know about you. Look, I, I, my kids didn't play a lot of soccer. I understand like the explosion of the, of the sport in Canada that so many people, m- many more people are into it now than when I was growing up. Um, and I, I, I've moved beyond the comparisons with hockey. I, I don't know about you, but I, I did, I did really get drawn into this. I know there are some people, I think Fox news was, uh, on about it the other day. They got to make soccer more exciting. It's too slow. I'm not in that camp. I'm not in that camp at all. Um, it, it does look to me on television in particular, like a, um, like a complicated chess game and the strategy behind the movements of the players and where they're standing and the old Gretzky adage, you know, go where the puck is going to be, go where the ball is going to be. I, I don't know about you, but I, I really felt drawn into this and, uh, I'm really disappointed. I'm really disappointed. I thought, uh. You know, I don't know anything about the sport. Like, don't get me wrong. I am like, what's happening now, guy? I'm like, we're in the newsroom here in Ottawa watching and like some of the soccer guys are just rolling their eyes at me. Like, please explain offside to me for the seventh time. What happens off the foot? Anyway, um, but I did get drawn into the narrative here that this is an up and coming country. We're in a position we've never been in or haven't been in in many, many decades. And this is a really exciting group of players. And it's just, you know, it didn't turn out that way. They lost. They lost 2-1 today to Morocco. Um, we've got the final goal that they'll score. Um, they've scored two goals <laughs> in three games. And that's, that's, not, that's not nothing. That's a fair bit in, uh, in soccer. Sam Atakubi, here's uh, the second goal for Canada in the World Cup. Now set more than the three. Is that a Kubi? He does really well down that left side. And that's an own goal. Canada have one back. Sam Kubi's balling from the left. I've tried to deflect it away. It's past Bono. The deficit cuts in half, and maybe there is hope. Maybe there is hope. The first goal Morocco yeah. have conceded. And it was an own goal. So uh, throughout the show, send me your texts. Uh 71010 let me know how you're feeling like are you a huge soccer fan have you have you really embraced the game here i'm uh, yeah i know there's I, I i'll put it to you this way i don't like i'll watch a lot of live hockey i watch the gray cup i'll watch the super bowl i'm not one of these sports guys who's you know got the bets going in the pools going and everything like that but i get right into it i watch the olympics every 4 years variety of different sports, but I'm not, I I wouldn't call myself a massive sports fan. Um, so that's how I engaged. And that says to me that if I'm engaged, I know that there's a lot of people out there, uh, who are engaged as well. And they're probably, they're probably pretty disappointed today. And, uh, rightfully so, because, uh, I know particularly in uh, Eastern Canada and Vancouver as well, uh, there's a lot of support for soccer, professional soccer. A lot of people recognize these teams. So, um, it, 
it is a bit of a gut punch because this was supposed to be um, a, a really strong year for Canada. What, uh, coming up on the show, uh, we have been immersed here in the capital uh, in the light rail transit fiasco. And I'm not going to get into it because it's too local for this show. But I will say this. To everyone out there who, uh, in every city where there are mega projects going on, whether it's a stadium, a transit system, or a new library, just remember that you're likely being told, if not uh, flat out falsehoods, you're likely being told about 10% of the story. Uh, we've just had a public inquiry here in the capital about the fiasco that is Ottawa's LRT. And the overall story is that whether it's the corporate side or the public side, the politician side, people forget the public. They don't think about the public. They think about covering their own behinds and making sure when it flies, it doesn't hit them. And we have had a tremendously depressing, frustrating few years here on this issue, but I think it applies to all mega projects, um, particularly the public private partnerships, the P3s. If you're not familiar with this, what it does is you as a taxpayer shove the risk off to a private consortium of builders during the building phase. Because your city of Toronto or Vancouver or Montreal doesn't have a construction department where they can build a stadium. So they've got to, they've got to contract that out, right? The only problem with that is you're using public money and guess what? Taxpayers have something to say about that. And so when things don't go right and they never go right on big projects, the taxpayers scream bloody murder and the politicians who shoveled over the money say, hey, we're watching your money for you. We're going to make them be accountable. And they scream at these in public and sometimes in, in, always in private, but sometimes in public, they scream at these executives on the, on the consortium side that are building whatever this thing is. And they, they come back to the public and you see, you see we're holding them accountable. They're going to be better. They're going to be better. What we've learned here and what you'll learn there, wherever you are, is that when you do these things, you have zero leverage. You have no leverage. They've signed a contract. They're going to do the big project. And they've got, a, you know, maybe they've got 17 of these things going on around the world. And for us here in Ottawa, it's a pretty small transit system for a company of the size of Alstom that made the trains in France, right? So this applies to all cities that are trying to build things. And it's very, very troubling because we're out of the business of building things by governments, generally speaking. Even if it's a school, you'll have a P3 on a school. Like the city of Mississauga, I correct me if I'm wrong, but I don't believe they would have a, a building department that would build a new school. They contract that out. Right. And this is, this is a vulnerability. And, and I'm not saying you've got to scrap that all together, but taxpayers find out the hard way, what that actually means, what that actually means. Like you are vulnerable to delays, cost overruns. And a lot of hidden stuff, a lot of hidden stuff. The judge yesterday in the Capitol in Ottawa said, there's far too much hidden stuff. And so keep that in mind when you're hearing from your officials about a big, important project, whether it's repaving a road, whether it's, uh, hey, coming up the 413, 
Is that the number, the 413, that new highway? I think that Ford's been talking about. I think that's it. It, You know, you're not going to get the full story and the full story might not come out for years and sometimes it's ugly. And what, what happened here yesterday is that the, the public learned how brutal it was. And if you're a real geek and you don't live here and you love public inquiries like I do, I'm a bit of a geek like that. Um, you, you've never read a public inquiry like this one. The judge did not hold back. Um, it was a flamethrower of a public inquiry. I've, I've never, ever seen a judge, uh, write something in that way in, and just, I mean, essentially came right up to the ledge and suggested the mayor of Ottawa basically, and others, uh, didn't tell the truth under oath. Their, their testimony did not hold up to scrutiny and it was not truthful, which is an artful way of saying something else. Um, your text on soccer, love world cup soccer. And I love hockey. I'm with you on that. This performance in Qatar is not much better than 1986 world cup. Very disappointing results for Canada's men's soccer. Graham, I'm all on board with trying to enjoy soccer, but the offside rule is a bit silly. The rule needs to be adjusted to the position of the feet or something more lenient. How about a line? It stops way too many goals. Steve from Ottawa. Thanks, Steve. I, I, I can't help you on offside. I just, I don't understand it. Scott Reed, Scott Reed's going to be here. You know what? Text me, uh, text me a short, simple explanation of offside in soccer. I challenge you soccer fans to do it. 7-10-10. Explain soccer offside in one sentence. I'm Graham Richardson. Stay with us. Welcome back to News Talk Today on the iHeartRadio Talk Network. Welcome back. I'm Graham Richardson. I hope you're having a good day. It is uh, Thursday and uh, Canada is out. Uh, We knew Canada was going to be out today, but they did not beat Morocco at the World Cup. They lost 2-1. So a lot of disappointment, but there is a backstory here, I think, of positivity. Uh, Michael Finley is the former Canadian senior men's national team head coach and assistant coach. He worked with and coached 17 of the 26-man uh, squad during his time with uh, Canada Soccer. He joins us on the line. How are you feeling today, Michael? It's it's a bit of a disappointment, but at the same time, uh, w- what do you take away from, from this time at the World Cup for Canada? First of all, hi, Graham. Thanks for having me. Um, yeah, I mean, uh, I mean, first and foremost, the, the, the words you just used there, there's a, a disappointment because... Um, you know, you, you, these players, uh, and, uh, play football professionally and, and at that level of the game, it's, it's about winning. And so when you don't win, it's a disappointment. Um, you know, certainly the, the takeaways have to be, uh, seen as, as steps in the process. Um, I think we all know it's, uh, that it's, you know, been 36 years since the team has been at, uh, on this stage and, and coming back to the stage, uh, there was great expectation, but there was also realities and and now accountabilities. If you want to compete at this level, um, you have to be prepared to, you know, have some very deep self analysis and and understand, you know, why you didn't get the results that that, that you were striving for. But uh, you know, it's a you have to be optimistic if you if you work and live in the world of football, 
if you're not an optimist, uh, you're not going to be around very long. So I think yeah. the optimistic view is, you know, what is next. But uh, uh, one thing I can say uh, on behalf of, of all of those players and, and all of the people who work for them, um, you know, there was no embarrassment. Um, no. Uh, there was credibility established. And I think there was a wake-up call to a number of people globally that uh, there's quality uh, within, uh, within the players and within the programs. I um I, I like like a lot of Canadians. Um, I was aware through news coverage of what they were doing and the fact they were in the World Cup. I watched the World Cup. I'll watch the final normally. I wouldn't watch rounds like this. I think similar attitudes for people who are who enjoy you know I, I deep respect for these athletes and it's just not one of my games. And I got quite drawn into it. So I come to Belgium and Canada with okay these guys apparently are quite good and they might yeah. have a chance here and. Wow, it was that that was that that opening half against Belgium. I was like, the, the, <laughs> these guys might win this. I mean, to you was that? Um, I, I mean, it's easy in hindsight to say that was the peak, but I, I think a lot of people who haven't uh, had their nose pressed to the glass saw that uh, how close they were and how aggressive they were as a real eye opener on Canadian soccer. Would you agree? Yeah, I think what one of the most important things in the Belgium game. Uh, was a, it, it was a statement game. You know, mm-hmm. it was the first game back at the World Cup stage. It was a game playing against the you know second, currently second ranked team in in FIFA at the time. Um, and I think a lot of people uh, within the football community, uh, you know, were were unsure themselves uh, on what that result would look like. And it being a statement game, it sent I think uh, a great message that uh, you know putting players in the right environments, uh, competitively, internationally, um, we have the quality to compete. And that was what it was. Uh, the reality is, is, is football at the, you know, pointy end of the pyramid, you know, is all about, uh, the execution and, and Belgium on that day showed you they needed one chance. Mm. Uh, whereas we needed a number of chances and still didn't come, you know, complete the process. So that there's, there is the opportunity to learn from, from something that was uh, presented to them. But uh, I think it's it, the word you would use is a, is a, is a statement game uh, against Belgium. Yeah. We're talking to Michael Finley, former uh, Canadian senior men's national team head coach. Um, I, I was going to ask you, what do they have to improve on? I th- think I know what's your take well I think what it is at the end of the day it's it's about experiences um there is you know the the reality of of international football at this level and you look at any of the teams that we played in our group stages the majority um if not 100 percent of the players are top, are playing the top five leagues in the world um, and they're in consistent environments. They're competing for both domestic and international competitions, such as the Champions League. Um, and that that is something we need to push for. Um, we need more players in those types of environments. Uh, we need those experiences. Uh, we need those opportunities from to see, you know, both ends of the spectrum, um, winning and losing, and how to deal with that. Um, our, our job in Canada for that national team now will be to try and promote that. Um, in 2026, where we're co-hosting with the United States and Mexico, um, will come quicker than you think. Uh, and that planning started um, the moment they were eliminated against Croatia. So uh, there's, a, there's work to be done. Um, depth in this squad will be an issue um, going forward. Some, some players aging out. 
um, certainly in, in, in the defending portion of, of this team, there'll be concerns about, you know, where the next one's coming from. Um, so there, there's a lot of recruitment, a lot of identification and, and process to, to go through. Michael Finley, appreciate your time today. Thank you very much. Great. Thanks for having me. All right. Great day. That's Michael Bye-bye. Finley talking about soccer. We asked your texts to try to explain this rule to me offside, and you've done well, I think. I'm going to read some of them right now. This is offside in soccer, okay? No body part should be past the last defender's last body part. Hmm. Okay. I think I get that. We've got some better ones, I think. An offensive player can't be behind the last defender when the ball is kicked. I understand that. There's no cherry picking in soccer. I get that. This is, this is my favorite one, I think that is, helps me because there's a bit of a hockey analysis here. In soccer, the last defender is the equivalent of the opposing blue line in hockey for the purpose of offside. So that last defender is the blue line. And then once it's off the foot, I believe that blue line disappears. I think I have that right. If you are onside when the ball is kicked, as soon as the ball is kicked, you can get behind the opposition. Okay? So the opposition, the defender, is the blue line. Off the foot of the offense, so you've got to be in front of them. Off the foot of the offensive player, the blue line disappears. If I have that wrong, you'll tell me. Here's another one locally. Offside rules. After the center line, the team on the offensive can't touch the ball if caught behind the defending players. Uh, uh, Not sure if I get that. Offside rules. After the center line. Yeah. Okay. I'm not sure if I get that. Anyway, I, I like the blue line analogy. Thank you all for your comments. We got a lot of them. It's it's great because soccer fans are so passionate. And when you're passionate about something, you want to explain it and make other people passionate about it. And I think every four years, a lot of people are like, you see, you see, come on, like, look at this. How can you not like this? What's wrong with you? Don't give me the net is too large and it's the playing surface is too big and there's a complicated offside rule. Look at these athletes and it's exciting. Look at the fans. Look at the color. Anyway, that's been the World Cup. Too bad for Canada. Great to talk to Michael Finley. He's got hope. Uh, When we come back after the news, Alzheimer's, um, a drug slowed the cognitive decline overall in trial. We're going to talk a bit about that. There were some side effects. Uh, As the population ages, your friends, probably in your family, you're going to see more and more of this touching people. Certainly happens um, in amongst my peer group as well. And so a lot of people watching Alzheimer's in a way, um, in a much uh, in a much more focused way, I think, as the population ages. Also, Scott Reed, our CTV News political commentator, will join us. What is going on in Alberta with their new premier, the former broadcaster Danielle Smith? She seems to be pitching some kind of pseudo Quebec relationship, but not divide the country and just don't tell us what to do, Justin Trudeau. And some of the Albertans I've talked to are like, "What is this? What's going on?" In one of our most, if economically anyway, one of our most important province, if you take a look at the resource sector. I'm Graham Richardson. This is News Talk Today. We're going to take a break for the news. Stay with us. 
You're listening to News Talk Today on the iHeartRadio Talk Network. Welcome back. I'm Graham Richardson. I hope you're having a good day. It's Thursday here for just the day today. There's some encouraging news on Alzheimer's from the Alzheimer's Society about a new drug that has been tested and it shows some promise. Uh, Dr. Joshua Armstrong is a research scientist with the Alzheimer's Society of Canada. He joins us uh, now. Dr. Armstrong, thanks for being here. Tell me about this trial and this drug and what, what the early results show about it. Uh, sure. Uh, this drug, Lacanumab, the full results were just released this week at a conference in San Francisco. It's a new drug where they're treating people with mild cognitive impairment or early stages of Alzheimer's disease. And what they found when giving this drug intravenous over following these people for 18, 18 months was that it had some positive, moderate effects on the cognition of these individuals. So they were able to maintain their cognition at a little bit higher rate compared to the placebo group. Why is that important? Like, can you give us some examples of what their cognitive abilities would be uh, and how they would Im- improve with the uh, drug? Sure. This is important because we've never actually had any pharmaceuticals have a direct impact on slowing the cognitive decline that comes with Alzheimer's disease. So co- cognition, when you develop d- dementia or Alzheimer's disease, slowly d- declines over time, leading to all sorts of challenges of daily living. So this drug was able to just moderately have less decline in those who took the drug compared to those who took placebo. So while the results are just moderate and not overly exciting, there's still a positive signal there that there is an impact uh, by this drug for treating uh, what's known as amyloid plaques within the brain. Mm. And when you say moderate as opposed to dramatic, what, what, can you give me an example of what a moderate improvement would be? Uh, it's hard to tell at this stage of game. We, they, they use a scale, an 18-point scale. Okay. There was just about a 0.45 difference between the two scores. Well, it's so something, right? Actually, it's something, uh, whether it's actually clinically significant or even meaningful to these patients, is uh, more work needs to be done to try to tease that out. Very early stages yet. Appreciate that. What about side effects? There were some? Uh, most definitely. So that they do, the re, the companies themselves say that more research needs to be done because they did have some patients experience things like brain bleed and brain swelling uh, from from the drug. Uh, so definitely need to be safe with this, follow it over time, and to learn more about who gets who gets positive effects and who has these negative effects. Generally speaking on Alzheimer's, I, 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 would, I think we're spending more time... Um, we're paying more attention to it now uh, because more people are aging and it's touching more families just naturally, but also I think people are more aware. If, mm-hmm. if you are a relatively healthy individual, maybe you're heading into your senior years, are there things you can do that will help um, avoid this or do we know yet? There's definitely a lot of knowledge that comes with this. We call them dementia risk reduction or uh, modifiable risk factors for dementia. So you can address things like uh, around your heart, getting better sleep, being physically active, being socially active, being cognitively active. All these things can help reduce your dementia risk by increasing your brain health. I, I've, I've heard people do daily puzzles, whether it's Wordle or something like that, on a regular basis as a routine. Those kinds of things can help. They can, only if they're really challenging and forcing you to learn something or uh. forcing you to give you some effort. If you're just doing it out of routine and you're not, it's just kind of fun passing the time, not going to give you much benefit. It's where you have to struggle a little bit and work hard 
to get results, that's where you kind of get those best uh, effects for your brain. So not just keep your brain active, but push yourself, push your yeah. brain. Challenge yourself. Yeah, mm. sure. And and at all ages, that's a good thing. That's a, a part of being alive. At all ages, you do that. Um, but there is some some suggestion that if you if you do that consistently, uh, you can keep these terrible things at bay. Keeping your brain active is important for for your brain health. So the more you do, the better your brain will be. How big is this field now with the aging population? Well, we released a report back in September looking at the future of dementia in Canada. What we're looking at now is over 650,000 Canadians currently with dementia. Mm. We're expecting that number to grow fairly rapidly over the next few years as the population ages. Wow. And, and we, generally speaking as a society, are not prepared for those kinds of numbers as it stands now, let alone a massive increase. Would you agree? No. Yeah, well, we are, we are are already seeing many of our healthcare systems kind of struggle with uh, the COVID uh, pandemic. So we can, as the number of people with aging issues, including dementia, but also have many other conditions, as that number grows, we're going to see further challenges to these systems. So if the systems aren't doing well now, how are they going to fare down the road when we have many more healthcare users within them? We appreciate your time. And even though it's moderate and it's small and it still needs lots of work, at least there's some positive effects. Before I let you go, how many people involved in this trial? There is 1,800 approximately with 900 taking the drug and 900 taking the placebo. And over how long? 18 months. And they're continuing to do follow-up past that 18 months, but okay. these results were for the 18 months. Thanks so much for coming on. Appreciate it. Thank you for having me. That is Joshua Armstrong talking about Alzheimer's and talking about um, some progression here. Uh, we're going to talk to Scott Reed after the break. And before we do that, I, I, I wanted to get into the Sovereignty Act and Daniel Smith, the new premier of Alberta. Um, they introduced this Sovereignty Act within the United Canada yesterday. It passed first reading. Um. The idea here is a fight with Ottawa. You can't tell us what to do. The backdrop is the vaccines and the vaccine mandates that you must have Ottawa and federal health authorities impose things on the province. This premier is now uh, pushing back against that, clearly trying to pick a fight, not only with the federal government, mainly with Justin Trudeau. Daniel Smith believes this is where her path to reelection for her party and her first win as Premier lies. Here is Danielle Smith on what she did yesterday. We've been ignored for 10 years. The, uh, the former uh, Premier, Rachel Notley, tried the climate leadership plan to get a better relationship with Ottawa. It failed. Uh, pr uh, former Premier uh, Jason Kenney tried to have a collaborative relationship with Stephen Gibault in Quebec to get LNG export. It failed. We put forward an equalization referendum to try to start a conversation to change the relationship with Ottawa. It failed. So now we're going to try something new. I think we've got their attention. All right. Here again is why the Premier of Alberta is doing this. A long and painful history of mistreatment and constitutional overreach from Ottawa has for decades caused tremendous frustration for Albertans. In response, we are finally telling the federal government, no more. It's time to stand up for Alberta. It is a regular thing, particularly in the prairies, that they look at the arrangement Quebec has in Confederation and they say it's different and more favorable to Quebec than it is to provinces in the West, particularly Alberta. 
she is tapping that and trying to get a similar arrangement, it seems, with Quebec, or with, with Canada, similar to what Quebec has, okay? I mean, the difference, of course, is, well, there's a whole lot of difference. The other thing is on the sovereignty bill, it gives tremendous power, apparently, to the cabinet, and it was sort of chaotically rolled out yesterday. We're going to talk to Scott Reed more about this. By the way, here is Justin Trudeau responding to this from the Alberta government. We're going to see how this plays out. Uh, I'm not going to take anything off the table, but I'm also not looking for a fight. Not looking for a fight, which I think is exactly what Daniel Smith would like to have, is a fight. So what are the politics of this? Why is Alberta doing this? And I think there's some, some deep history in that province. The National Energy Program, Mr. Trudeau's father, um, the overall sense in Alberta and in the energy sector that this particular government would l rather leave it in the ground. And whether that's fair or not, both sides can have their arguments, but that is the belief that they think they don't care about resource. They only care about Quebec businesses and central Canadian based businesses. They do not care about the resource sector in Canada. That's the view from the West. We will talk to a someone who's not in the West, but who knows these issues top to bottom. Scott Reed, when News Talk 1010 returns, right after the break, I'm Graham Richardson. Stay with us. News Talk Today continues. On the iHeartRadio Talk Network. Overhyped. Great jobs and opportunity. In this election, here's what I want to do. Or underplayed. Overhyped and underplayed. Scott Reeds here. Scott, how are you? Just great, sir. How you doing? I'm all right. You a big soccer guy now? Or did you get yes. sucked into that? Yeah. Uh, yes, I'm a complete uh, bandwagoner. Uh, so I became uh, incredibly expert on, you know, the Holland midfield for about two weeks. And now it, of course, has escaped all my brain and I back to know me nothing. You'll go, uh, you'll go away for four years and then get back into it. Uh, I just wanted to read this text quickly. We've been talking about soccer. Graham, the Canadian women's soccer team are Olympic gold medalists and seventh ranked in the world. I don't hear you mention that very much. It's never too late to remind the listeners and yourself with not being a soccer fan. It shows disinterest. Don't rain on their parade today. I, I take your point. No, no I, I do. And I did watch the women. And I think it's really exciting. So I just wanted to get that in there. Um, uh, Scott, can you just uh, forget soccer for a second? Uh, sure. And wa walk me through this Daniel Smith, Alberta, Trudeau uh, attempt at picking a fight, like the Sovereignty Act. Do, do, you, do you get the politics of what, uh, what I think she's trying to do, um, which is, you know, hit that hit that button in Alberta that Quebec's got a better deal than us and we want similar things is it that simple I, uh I'm not sure it's exactly that simple but it's it's certainly simple and mm. yet as simple as it is she still managed to um um you know pooch it all up uh look I, I there's a long tradition 
in many provinces, but particularly in Alberta, of uh, saying we're getting a raw deal. We're the economic engine of the country insofar as we're the home of the energy sector. Uh, we uh, we write the checks that support equalization. Right. Um, our contribution to jobs and growth is second to none. And yet, you know, Ottawa takes and it never gives and it screws us over and blah, blah, blah. And, you know, back to the days of, uh, you know, Bible Bill Abahart, much less uh, oh. Peter Lougheed, wow. there's a long tradition. Yeah, there's a long tradition of beating up on Ottawa and saying, you know, we're getting a raw deal and us and them politics, you know, lots of, you know, lots of experience where they succeed. I think the problem for Danielle Smith is that, you know, she is she is alleging the her fundamental complaint is that Ottawa is overreaching and her response is to overreach and to do so in a clumsy and frankly incompetent way. So let me let me mm. just say this first thing and i'll shut up about it if you're going to campaign your uh during your leadership on this idea that we will bring forward a law that will allow us to defend ourselves and turn ourselves off to federal incursions if you're going to campaign on that during your leadership if you're going to campaign on that after you become premier if you're going to say that it's your first bill if you're going to introduce and build your throne speech around it and if you're going to introduce it as you know bill number one and hold a press conference then you at minimum need to know what you're talking about now that doesn't mean that you should expect that, you know, guys like me are going to like it. I'm not going to like that legislation. But get your story straight. At least know what in hell you're doing. And yeah. that first day was a debacle. They held a uh, technical briefing. You could hear the media were angry. They couldn't get straight answers. The premier held a press conference with her justice minister. They couldn't explain. It was obvious that the bill permitted them to, you know, legislate as a cabinet, not as a legislature, not to bring, new, we're going to rewrite laws. We're going to pass a motion that says we object to this incursion on whatever, anything, energy policy, health policy, whatever have you. Then we as cabinet are going to then have full license to rewrite federal and provincial laws to our liking. They will not necessarily need the imprimatur of the legislature. That is not democratic. And we will bring it back. She was reluctant to admit it. Then yesterday she has to hold a whole other new press clarification saying, no, the original motion that we'll put forward will stipulate any changes i still frankly am not convinced that that's really going to be the case so my point is this if you're going to do something controversial at least be clear on what you're doing she couldn't even explain her own idea and her own idea let's face it is cracked so now it's cracked and incompetent so and i know albertans who are conservative who are just kind of rolling their eyes at this saying this is a sideshow and it's not helping her where she needs to grow which is in the cities and Rachel Notley is just sitting there saying, keep going because this is working for me. I, I, I don't know what's going to happen there. How badly has she hurt herself in these first few months? I think she hurts herself fundamentally. And it's, it's around, I mean, look, it doesn't matter who you are in politics, what advantages or disadvantages you, you have, you've, you've got to, you got to play to the context of your own candidacy. So people have certain weaknesses or they're perceived to have certain weaknesses. You have to compensate for that. You have to shift the, this debate to ground of your liking. You have to reassure people that fears they might have about you are unfounded or that they'll be mitigated. Mm. The fear about Danielle Smith is that she is too extreme, that it will not be a stable, competent government, and that you will not be able to rely on her. That's why the Calgary Chamber of Commerce issues a news release on the night that she introduces her throne speech and says, this 
will discourage investment. This is a bad idea. Hey, Premier, we warned you about this idea before you introduced it. You persisted. It's a bad idea. So for her, the reason I think she's doing herself so much damage, it isn't just the ideas that she's pursuing. It's that she's reinforcing negative perceptions of herself, that she's not competent, that she's not stable, that it won't be a government you can rely on. And it doesn't matter whether it's far right, far left, right down the middle. People ultimately expect that they can get what they're looking for from government, that they can at least have it be predictable and reliable. And right now, it's just a barrel of monkeys. And I think that's her biggest problem is that she just, with at every turn, takes herself off message, away from economic issues, and looks like she doesn't know how to run the store. Well, guess what? People aren't going to allow you to keep running the store if you don't know how to do it. And before I let you go, Jason Kenney's send-off, I mean, he, reminding people he was not conservative enough for that party in that province at that time. Think about that. That's quite something. He, he, a very gracious statement at the end. I am concerned that our democratic life is veering away from ordinary prudential debate towards a polarization that undermines our bedrock institutions and principles. This is Jason Kenney, the conservative, saying this. Do you think he is, um, is he, is anybody listening in that? On that side of the ledger. Yeah. Yes. Some are. Mm -hmm. Now they may dismiss him and say, well, it's all sour grapes and you're on the way out and uh, we don't agree with you and so on and so forth. But look, you know, he's ringing the bell uh, that so many others are ringing. And, you know, that it, it comes down to this fundamental issue. There are limits to this populist grievance, this protest politics. There are very practical limits to it. If you're going to tell everybody that you can't trust government that is full of corrupt thieves and no goods, that the institutions that our democracy are built upon cannot be trusted, well, then guess what happens if you employ those arguments to become the government? Then you inherit what you have sown. Mm. So now she is the government. So don't be surprised when people think you're no good, you can't be trusted, and you're not competent. Because that's what you've told people to expect a government, and now you are the government. If you're going to tear these institutions, well, remember, if you hope to be the steward of them, you one day will have to suffer the very slings and arrows that you've launched. You're playing with fire. Uh, you like doing that too, but just uh, not in government anymore. Scott Reed. That's right. <laughs> Thanks for hey, being buddy. here. Talk soon. Sure. That's Scott Reed. Uh, Good to talk to him as always. Uh, When we come back, snow in Vancouver. Um, Some people were trapped for eight hours. Eight hours. And I'm not one of these Eastern Canadians who turns my nose up at people in Vancouver when snow hits. They're not ready, nor should they be. When we come back, stay with us. Welcome back to News Talk Today on the iHeartRadio Talk Network. Welcome back. I'm Graham Richardson. Thanks for being here. Just after one o'clock as we uh, continue on with the show. I I know a lot of you have been seeing uh, some incredible pictures out of Vancouver the last couple of days. Uh, And, you know, I'm in Ottawa here and uh, we are used to lots and lots of snow and a massive snow clearing budget with salting and all of the things you need to get around in a full winter city. When it hits Vancouver, it's completely different. Um, Jasbir Romana is a radio host in Vancouver, 
He couldn't get home on Tuesday because of the snowstorm, and he had to sleep at a stranger's home. Jasbeer, welcome to the show. Thanks for joining us. Thank you for your time. Thank you for having me. How bad was it? What was going on? Where were you? It was a normal day for us and our team on Radio Shari Punjab, and I'm in broadcasting for the last two decades, and just before the snow started falling, I was, uh, along with my colleague, telling my listeners that how to be careful on the road and uh, what are the precautions they need to take and all that. It was a very casual thing that we yes. did every winter season, but this was a different one. Occasionally this happens in Vancouver where you get some snow and people aren't prepared. And, you know, even even in snowy cities, uh, the first snowfall can be really, people forget how to drive in it. So every year this happens, but this one was somewhat different, wasn't it? I know, whenever... This season comes and the first snow comes and we do talk about it and we get calls from, you know, Alberta and uh, Toronto and your area and people make fun of us that you guys get, you know, so panicky about this. But there must be a good reason that maybe we don't take care about, uh, about the tires and stuff and maintenance and everything and we don't have proper skill maybe, but something went really bad uh, last to last night. And someone uh, should be held responsible, and they are working on it already. Provincial government and uh, the contractors and all that, that it shouldn't happen again because this was the very first uh, snow. And and so I always assume that you just don't have the same snow clearing budget because you don't have enough snow. But you do have a budget of some kind, and it was really bad. Like, how bad was it? Like, you couldn't get anywhere? Uh I tell you that what happened to us and nine of our colleagues on the radio that uh, we are on the Richmond side of the Alex Fraser Bridge. Yes. And we were supposed to come back to Surrey crossing the bridge. We couldn't cross, even though that was, bridge was only like three minutes drive from our studio and uh, we couldn't go. So we, we were totally uh, into that standstill conditions and uh, we, we kept sitting for hours and hours and then luckily uh, we got uh, info from a friend of us that this is a, there's a house close by that you can go there. Four of us, we went there. And interestingly, that family, they were on the south side of the border, the other side of, uh, of the bridge, and they were into somebody else's house. And uh, I was talking this morning as well. This is a very hot topic still that, uh, you know, uh, these natural calamities and bad times, they are bad times, of course, but they unite us all in a way that uh, uh, in when in the challenging situations we have that uh, you know feeling that never nowadays we don't see that feeling that we are we should stand for each other we're in this together we're not just staring at our phones mm-hmm. and, and you know, uh, talking about that family they opened that house for us their kitchen was ours their bedrooms they opened for us uh, how can we forget them yeah well it's probably because you're well known right did they know you did they listen to you even though, uh, yes, we, we, the people do know us, but even though, uh, apart from that, there were 500 people in, in a Sikh temple uh, close to our studio as well, 500 people there. Uh, they provided them food and everything throughout the night. Uh, so, you know, uh, in the natural calamities, people get together. This, this is the beauty of this, uh, tra- uh, you know, uh, the natural calamity and uh, tough times. And it's, mu- it's, it's, part of your, it's part of many faiths, but I know it's part of the Sikh faith that you must do this when people are in, in trouble. Um, as a, as they, a, do, they do it. Doesn't matter it happens here or doesn't matter it happens any other part of the world. People come out and they, yes. you know, uh, you know, homo sapiens, 
uh, we are all same. We're all uh, the same. Are, this is something that differentiates us from the other uh, creatives in this universe. Understood. And uh, so you say it's still it's still a hot topic there. Like, wh- what are people yesterday, saying? What are your listeners saying? In my two-hour show, you wouldn't believe me, I got 60 or 65 calls. Everyone has a story to tell. Someone, some, some people are blaming to the tires. Some people are blaming to the bad, bad drivers. Some people are saying they should have a ch- chains on the tires. Some are saying that uh, the cities and the contractors on the bridge, they didn't uh, act proactively. They should have done thing, uh, something. Now, the provincial government is definitely taking notice of it, and they definitely are planning something, uh, even though they said that um, you know, we, we, we're not going to uh, mandate uh, the snow tires here because this is uh, not Ottawa, this is not uh, Calgary or... Uh, Montreal, uh, yeah, yeah. I, yeah, you yeah. can't mandate snow tires because... That, that's going to cost people money, and it's like it snows twice a year. But the other thing, the other part of this is that Vancouver, and the Vancouver area is, of course, beautiful. It's a world-class city, and there must be some embarrassment here that you couldn't get from A to B. It seemed like just a basic problem. Is that what a lot of people are angry about? <laughs> it is, actually. Yesterday I was talking to this lady, uh, Rajveer Karbhateshi, and uh, many others. They kept sitting in a bus for seven hours. Wow. In a line. And the driver, after seven hours, the driver said, hey, there's a Sikh temple here. Go to that. So I was wondering, why wouldn't they, why wouldn't the driver know from the dispatch or his own company that the traffic is not moving and it's not going to be open for many uh, hours? So they shouldn't have even, uh, uh, you know, had those people in, inside the bus. Wow. Is it better now? Has the snow melted? Is everybody back to Vancouver? It's clear uh, now. But, uh, uh, everything is clear, but people have stories, uh, lifetime stories now. Yes, yes. And, and in the end, it wasn't 20 centimeters of snow, was it? Like how much snow parts, fell? Uh, in some parts, it was like five, six, seven centimeters to 20 centimeters in certain areas. Okay. But, uh, but why those slippery conditions happened? That's a mystery still, because I'm not expert on the job. But my wife, she runs an acupuncture clinic. Uh, from her clinic to our home is only nine minutes drive and took her two and a half hours to uh, travel in this uh, uh, distance. Wow. Wow. That is beyond frustrating. Uh, Jasbir, from everyone in the rest of the country, we hope that Vancouver is getting back to fancy coffees and bragging about no winter. Okay. Like, Thank you for your uh, time. <laughs> Thank you for your concern and beautiful British Columbia. It is still beautiful. Please do come and visit us. <laughs> Thanks so much for joining us, Jasbir. Thank you. Uh, that is Jasbir Romana, radio host in Vancouver. Ooh, some of your texts are coming in here about this. Three of her staff members in our Delta BC branch slept in the office Tuesday night, stuck on, I think it's Anasis Island. Bridge is closed. I am from Quebec. We have a date for winter tires. Yes, it's mandatory in Quebec. I know that December 1st. Why isn't this required of other provinces? Well, as Jasbir was saying, right? Like your requirement in Quebec, same thing in Ontario. If, if Ontario required it, people in Toronto would spring bloody, scream bloody murder because they don't get enough snow to justify it. So making it mandatory in Quebec actually makes sense if you look at the map or, you know, I'm sure people in Montreal would argue or whatever. But I mean, you get a lot more snow because of where you are. So this is the problem, right? You can't mandate it in mandate snow tires in BC. Yeah, you need it in Merritt. You need it in the interior. That's a good idea. Most people have it, especially in the mountains. But down on the mainland, 
it's it's hard to justify that. Now, of course, the other night, people would really need snow tires. I lived in Vancouver for five years. In 1989, the snow was so bad, I left work downtown at 4 p.m. I got home at 12.30 in the morning. They have no snow removal equipment and nobody knows how to drive in it. I think it's a combination of all things and I'm not making fun of them. I think that if I'm sitting there in the city of Vancouver and I've got a limited budget like we all do, how much am I spending on snow clearing? How much am I spending on streets clearing? Like, you know, it's mostly rain, but then you're going to have this situation. They've got to, they've got to do better than they did the other night. We would never laugh at the people in BC because, Hey, you know, can't laugh at them. Everybody's jealous of them usually. And so I think that's part of it too. Yeah. Vancouver never gets winter and, oh, they're the beautiful people and they've got the ocean and the mountains. And then something like this hits and you're like, it was like when, uh, it was like when Mel Lastman called in the army, the rest of the country laughing at Toronto. It's like a sport. They never forgot that. They never forgot it. Him riding on the tank, afraid of snow. Anyway, Vancouver's going to be okay. It's great to hear from Jasper. I'm Graham Richardson. Stay with us. It's what's happening right now. This is News Talk Today on the iHeartRadio Talk Network. Welcome back. I'm Graham Richardson. Uh, 71010, I want you to text me. Have your working conditions changed post-pandemic? Like, have you, are you working from home? Are you doing a shorter work week and getting more flexibility from your employer? We're finding this more and more. They've got to do things to increase the likelihood that employees are going to stay with you in the long term. Uh, Keeping talent is a massive, massive problem across all sectors. There's been a recent study, a global four-day-a-week pilot project. So what they did was 33 companies, 903 workers, down to four-day weeks but they didn't change their pay. What? They didn't cut their pay by one day? How can they do that? Sounds like it went pretty well. Juliet Chores, professor of sociology at Boston College, the trial's lead researcher. Juliet joins us now. Thanks for being here. My pleasure. Yeah, thanks for having me. Were you surprised at the positive response here from, I, I would assume, the what, what did the... What did the um, employers say about this study as well? Well, the employers actually had the 9.0 that you just referenced, which is their overall rating of the trial. They said productivity was affected uh, by, on a, uh, on a scale of 0 to 10, they said their productivity performance from the trial was 7.7 and their overall company performance 7.6. So they, they're really pleased and the employees are, uh, um, thrilled with I the four-day week. Yeah. So, so the idea here that this kind of an arrangement is a give to employees or a concession to unions or whatever it may be, do we have to start looking at this in a different way, particularly for businesses? Well, 
the model that this trial uses is called the 180-100 model developed by Andrew Barnes at his company in New Zealand. Um, and it's 100% of the pay, 80% of the time in the office, so four rather than five days. But the idea is that companies and employees figure out how to maintain 100% of their productivity. So this is why it's something I think that, you know, the companies and the employees really are benefiting from. Um, in in most of these companies, there's enough um, wasted or inefficient time or things being done that are not being done, you know, mo- uh, in, in the best way, so that we, the companies spend two months before they start trying to figure out, like, what can we do differently? How can we work smarter? How can we work more efficiently? And what's really fascinating to me, if you ask me about, you know, sort of what the most surprising finding is, mm-hmm. that we asked work we asked workers, the, the employees, to rate the, the intensity of their work at, before the trial started. And we asked them to rate it at the end. And it didn't change. So they actually were able to figure out how to reorganize work so that it wasn't just people are really sped up during those four days at work. So they're not packing in more work. They are planning their lives better. They're probably wasting less time uh, kibitzing or whatever it is because they know they've got four days because their productivity, as you measured, stayed the same. Yeah, well, some of the companies said productivity is going up. But wow. Yeah. Um, So a big thing is meeting culture. A lot of companies have very dysfunctional meeting cultures. Too many meetings, they're too long, too many people go to them, they don't get enough done. So that's a big piece of of the kind of work reorganization that companies are doing. Some of the companies are set putting in systems that reduce distractions. So for example, one company in our third trial put in a stoplight, a a light system. Everybody's desk has either, you can put your light to green, yellow, or red. Green is, I'm available to talk. Yellow is, you can bother me, but it should be important. And red is, don't come anywhere near me. I am am in my flow. Ah. And that helps a lot because distractions are a big part of what reduces productivity in white-collar workplaces. Yeah. People doing whatever and and not not doing what they're paid to do. Uh, and it's very, very difficult to change that. I, let me ask you, you're in the United States, obviously. Uh, now, would this is this something that you could see a widespread adaptation in the United States where, um, you know, five days a week, sometimes six days a week at work is is becoming standard for a lot of people. There's a very driven workforce there and a driven business culture. Absolutely. And, you know, these first two trials had primarily U.S. companies. We have another trial that started in October of 2022. Again, primarily U.S. companies, although quite a few Canadian. Um, it is, it, it's definitely something that American employers are looking at. They, in the U.S., employees are really stressed and burned out, and that's hurting the employers. They are leaving, mm-hmm. and a lot of employers are having trouble attracting people. The very first company in our trial um, started their four-day week because they had so many people resigning. And two months later, you know, after a month of 
big resignations. Two months later, they went on to the four-day week, and the resignation, the the, the bleeding stopped, uh, and, and they've been on it for more than a year. The four-day work, work week is essentially a huge um, way to attract employees or at least keep them. Yes, and that's one of the things we're seeing even more as time goes by. We, we started our first trial in Feb of 2022. We're gearing up for our sixth trial now, and I, my sense is there's been a bit of a shift um, to more and more that uh, attrition and uh, open positions. More and more companies are coming and talking to us about, you know, they can't fill their positions. Yeah. We know all about uh, that. Lots of people experiencing it. Yeah, we had a, a session with the companies yesterday, and this is actually anecdotally something I've seen in my own work. I, I chair a climate, the board of a climate organization. Um, before we, and we just went to a four-day week to a trial. Before the trial, we were waiting months and months to hire people. I think we spent eight months trying to fill one position, and one of the comp, uh, it was an NGO. You know, because we NGOs typically have lower salaries than the private sector. Uh, mm-hmm. The representative from this company said they just couldn't fill their positions, and and once they put in the four day week, boom, 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 lots of applicants hiring much easier, and that's what we've been finding lately too. Juliet uh, Shore with Boston College and uh, the trial lead on the global four day work week pilot. Thanks so much for joining us. Fascinating discussion. Yeah, thanks for having me. All right. So uh, we'll let her get back to work if this is not day five. Hi, Gray. I'm working from home. I save eight hours a week in the car, $150 in gas, 32 hours a month, and $600 after tax per month. Loving it and never going back. That's Joe from Bainesville. Lucky you, Joe. That's uh, And we're hearing that a lot, particularly where I am, if you're listening in another part of the country. Ottawa and the public servants, many of them remain at home and they want to keep it that way. And they are finding it's, it, the government is moving towards a hybrid. I know other companies are doing this as well. I think if you're a slacker at the office, you're going to be a slacker at home. High performers at home, high performers at the office. If people want it, will companies allow it? We'll see. Stay with us. We're back after the break. So this is Christmas And what have you done Another year over This is News Talk Today on the iHeartRadio Talk Network And so this is Christmas Welcome back, I'm Graham Richardson. We'll keep this in for, this is one of my favorite Christmas songs. War is over, John Lennon, Yoko Ono. Why am I playing this? Well, because it's December 1. I want your texts. I want your calls. 71010-1855-633-1010. When does the season start for you? For me, this is the day. And a lot of people in my life say, no, 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 it's after Remembrance Day. We need almost two months of the holiday season. Like, starting today... December 1, the tree is up for 31 days until January 1st. Probably 32 if you count it as the first, right? That's a lot of Christmas. 
Today, you break out the Advent calendars if you celebrate Christmas. I know there's other faiths out there, obviously. But I want to know how you celebrate and how long you celebrate. I've noticed a trend and everybody's talked a lot about it. Anyway, keep your text coming, 71010. Let me, let me know, if, is, it, is December 1st too early for some people? I think it is. I had to be moved here by family members. They said, okay, we'll cut you a deal. It'll be December 1st on, you know, I think, at least I think that's what it was. I actually, I think I just put my foot down and I said, come on, December 1st to to January 1st. That's a long, long holiday. Um, I know people who I work with who are talking about a countdown to Christmas by September. Like in September, they're talking about a countdown to Christmas. When do you start and what do you do? Advent calendars have surged in popularity. My co-host here in Ottawa, Patricia Bowl, bought an advent calendar for her dog. Everything Christmas, everybody can have a Christmas. We for years now we've had we've had stockings hung for our dogs. And people think, well, that's of course, you got to have stockings for your dog on Christmas morning. It wasn't always this way. <laughs> it wasn't always this way. I swear. Uh, there's so much that is like, I, I think it's the over-commercialization and all that sort of stuff. But the other thing is, and I'm not being negative with this. People love this time of year. They love this time of year for everything it symbolizes, no matter what your faith is. It's, it's a time to look back and look forward at the same time. It is colder in most parts of the country. Fires are on. It is winter, you know, um, and I think that's a sort of a contemplative time for a lot of people to take assessment of where they've been and where they're going. And all of that is wrapped up with Christmas. But it doesn't mean you can hang the mistletoe and all the other things August 1st. I say, I say December 1st. Okay, we've got some texts. Tree goes up Christmas Eve and stays till January 6th. I like that. Abbreviated. But that's still, that's 12 days of Christmas. That's the 12 days of Christmas. I like that. That's good. Tree goes up 1st of December and it goes down Boxing Day. Boxing Day is what it's supposed to be. Put that stuff away. Now, okay, I'm going to engage the good listenership on this. My understanding of Boxing Day was years ago, the royal family, I believe, boxed things up. But I don't know if that's true. The origins of Boxing Day. I'm sure the Google machine will tell us about that. Or, um, Hi, Graham. I think Christmas season has started much earlier this year. Everyone is looking for some source of serotonin, as this will be a more normal Christmas for a lot of people post-COVID. I agree. I think that debating about what's going to be closed and open for most parts of the country is over. For all parts of the country, it's over. And I don't want to get into the debate now. But the last two Christmas seasons, in particular last year, I picked up my son at university in London, Ontario, driving back as things were closing. And he says, looks at me, he says, Dad, you said this wasn't going to happen again. There was no way they could do this. They're doing it again. And that's, that's, that is clearly not on the table this year. So I agree. I think a lot of people are looking forward to that and just having that, that part of uh, the last couple of years behind them. Christmas should be like the Olympics every four years. That's from Oakville. Ah, okay. 
It's never too early to celebrate anything. I take an, any excuse I can to celebrate. I love to celebrate. That's from Toronto. Good for you. There's nothing wrong with it. Like, I don't think, I don't get angry about this. I don't like, I don't think there should be hard rules, right? But for me, I, I, I just use it as a guide. And maybe it's the advent calendar, right? When you start opening the advent calendar, December 1, the decorations are out, you know, like you're getting ready for, uh, for the holiday season. Um, December 1 is the deadline in my house for the Christmas lights. Nailed it this year again. I, I think I'm onto something here. My fiance, like in terms of the, um, in terms of the, uh, the start of Christmas, December 1, I think that's fair. My fiance is absolutely Christmas crazy. The tree goes up shortly after Remembrance Day, fair enough, and stays up until the new year. I can't complain though. She's brought a lot of renewed Christmas joy into my life. That's nice. That's really nice. That's really nice. See, that's what I mean. Like, even if it's a different thing than you and like, really after Remembrance Day, that's too much. This person loves it and texting in that she's brought him a lot of joy. Boxing Day, people boxed Christmas meal leftovers for the poor. That's from Ottawa. Thanks for that. December 24th to February 1st. To February 1st. Okay. That's from Toronto. That's, uh, that's someone's, uh, that's someone's take on it. Um, I do think on the commercial side, I have fairly strong feelings about retail and when they get into the game. I know a lot of people, you know, start sending out on social media, Costco's got Christmas stuff out September one, and they're just trying to get it into people's minds so that they get their stock out and move product. Uh, I don't think Costco is necessarily trying to celebrate the season, but they know people are planning. But I, I do find on the commercial side, it's a bit much. After Diwali or Halloween, whichever comes later, indoor decor all over the house, outdoor after Remembrance Day so as not to offend. Fair enough. That's from Milton. Thank you. I put it up this year in mid-November mainly because I had time and ambition to do it. We'll get busy eventually. Might not care then. The lady says that's fine. She won't decorate it or the home until earliest today. Cool beats. Bit of a traditional home there, but he's outside. The lady, as he says, is inside. Put up the tree whenever you want, but don't make me listen to that horrible Christmas music for a month. Some of it's, I, some of it, I used to work retail when I was a kid in, uh, in, in my teens. And one of my jobs was, it was retail, like a lot of people. And it was a clothing store and the horse with no name and America. They played it on a loop, you know, so I, forever I hear that it, it, and then they, December one, they changed to Christmas music and it was a lot of really traditional Bing Crosby type stuff. So they were trying to create a mood and it forever tainted the music for me. Like, it's just like, I can't listen to that anymore. And then whenever I hear a horse with no name, I think about this store, right? So, and, and not in a negative way. It's just like, it, it was constant, right? Like hours and hours of the same song back when, you know, kids, we didn't have streams of music and millions of songs at our fingertips. We had, we had a CD or a mixtape, a mixtape that you automatically flipped. Um, on the Christmas music front, I agree. I, I think in moderation, every year we have a neighborhood party at our house. We haven't had it for a couple of years. We're having it this Saturday and it's quite the raucous affair. It's fun. And, uh, it was originally supposed to be back in the day, a work plus neighbors, but we had a massive snowstorm and the work people couldn't get there. 
So this was back in, you know, 10, 15 years ago. So ever since then, every, we've, we've had a neighbor's walk only Christmas party at our house. Haven't had it in a while and we're going to have it this year. And the, this is the pattern. We start with a Christmas playlist. It's got all the rock and roll Christmas, all the classics, some of the more avant-garde modern stuff. And then by about 10 o'clock, 11 o'clock, some, in some cases, 10, 30, 11 o'clock, it's like, okay, enough with that. It's time to crack out the journey. And you know what happens then? The tables move and people start dancing and stuff. So. Anyway, thanks for that. December 1. December 1. That's when it starts. Oh, Mike says, bah humbug, no Christmas if I had my way. Oh, come on, Mike. Keeping you informed daily. It's News Talk Today on the iHeartRadio Talk Network. It's good for you overall. Yeah, this is great. This is, it's a dream, man. The headline is Risking It All. Yeah, I think that's where we're going with this. With Dan Riskin. Welcome back. I'm Graham Richardson. Dan Riskin joins us. Hi, Dan. How you doing? Good. How are you? Ah, never better. This study about one of the symbols of the country uh, caught my eye. Uh, Canada yes. geese, uh, the factories of poop that they are, uh, lovely <laughs> to look at, but, uh, unless they're, and they're quite aggressive. They're quite, you know, they're not like, they're not like a passive bird. Uh, there's this study that suggests that everything we've been doing to move them along is kind of a failed experiment, right? Yes. I, you know, I know that they exist in the States, but they have our name on them. They're Branta canadensis. So they are Canada geese, not Canadian geese. A lot of people call them Canadian geese. I always they have a little twinge. No, it's Canada goose. With birds, the names are, um, they're, they're official. And, and so it's, it's def, it has to be called the same thing every time. And you actually capitalize it uh, when you're writing about birds. You can't do that with mammals because the names aren't standardized that way. Wow. So it's a Canada goose. Uh, and that's important, I guess, to people who are, who are into pedantics. But yes. anyway, Canada geese. Um, yes, sometimes they show up on your golf course and poop, or sometimes they are in your pond, or sometimes they're in front of your airport, and your airplanes don't want to suck them into their engines and end up in the Hudson like Sully Sullenberger's airplane did. So yes. uh, there's there's a lot of reasons you might want Canada geese to leave an area, and so one thing you can do is yell at them and chase them and clap your hands and, and run at them, and this is what they did in a study just to see if that worked. And it does make them go away then, but they come back. And so this for for this study, they put GPS and accelerometers on the Canada geese, and uh, at this field near in uh, geese away, and then would and pretty much geese their own if area they'd stay away for much longer. But if you chase them away, they just got this itch that they want to go back because they weren't doing whatever they wanted to do there. And so what the the basic take home from this is that shooing geese just does not work. And if you want to reduce the number of geese that live in an area, you've got to take lethal action if anything. Ah. The geese are in charge, and when you say lethal action, it's exactly what it means. And before everybody gets upset, this is very serious. This is not nuisance, because around airports, they can cause uh, serious problems. Absolutely, yeah. They they could take down an airplane, no problem, as they did with uh, that that airplane that went into the Hudson. So it's it's it is a major problem. Also, you know, these are uh, you know populations of of geese that can get quite large, and you know we've messed up these ecosystems so there aren't as many coyotes 
or other predators in areas that might be taking them out. And so their populations get quite big and, you know, they do poop all over the place and that gets into the drinking water and that can cause problems. So there are reasons you might not want Canada geese around. But again, from just a purely emotional reaction to this paper, the way I see it, it's like, you know, they represent Canada a little bit, right? They're Canada geese. And so, yeah, you ask us to leave, we'll leave, but we're coming back. Like we, we you know, we, we're very polite. Okay, you clap your hands. Yep, we'll, we'll get out of your hair. No problem. Oh, we're back. You know, we're just, we, we stay focused on what we're doing and we don't give up easily. So I you think know, that's it, on brand. For the geese. I think that's on brand for them too, because they don't take yeah. any guff. Uh, somebody, yeah, they don't take any guff. Somebody texting in Canadian cobra chickens. That's what they describe. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Canadian cobra chickens. Yeah. Not the standardized name for them, although we could put it in an appeal yes. to have their name. We could have trash pandas and cobra chickens. Yes. I think, we, you know, let's let's start this. Let's make this happen. So don't shoo if you really want them to go. Just let them do their stuff and they'll move on. Okay. Yeah. You've, you've got to make the habitat less attractive to them in other ways. They didn't really test those other methods. Um, one thing that they suggested in the paper is if you wait until the dead of winter when it's food is pretty hard to come by, uh, maybe then they would leave because there's really no reason to come back and they were doing most of their tests during seasons where there was still food around. Um, but, uh, you know, it, it, you have to have a, you have to be kind of a, a mean person to be picking on those things in the dead of winter when they're having their hardest time. Exactly. Um, this always catches my eye as well about names, this new study or a study that, that looked at where ge the ge geographical influence of names like April, May, and June, this is in the States, uh, the further south you are affects how many people have these names? Yeah, this is neat. So it's the idea that the names April, May, and June are more attractive as names to parents because those are nice times of year. Oh, it's April. Oh, the sun's coming out. Oh, yeah. the, we're starting to see the buds. They don't, they don't name your kid December or November, right? Or, or October. Um, and so the hypothesis that the researchers came up with was in different parts of North America, when spring arrives at different times, people will name their kids after the time that spring arrives for their area in higher numbers than in other parts. And so what they found, sure enough, if you look at April, May, and June, those are the three most common names that have month that are month names. Mm -hmm. uh, those are names for kids. If you look at the popularity of those names, April is more popular in the South and June is more popular in the North. And spring shows up in April in the South and, and it shows up later in June in the North. And so the idea is that people are naming their kids, they're influenced by the beauty of those names, by the what they associate with that word in terms of the place they live, which is really neat. And the other thing that came out of the study is uh, autumn is as a name is most popular in the north and the east of the united states which is of course where autumn brings those beautiful colors from all the oak trees and and just that that the beautiful dazzling color that you see in the east that you don't necessarily see i'm from edmonton we you mm. know we didn't get those reds that you get from from the maple trees out here so um so that that name autumn also tracks the place where autumn is a more beautiful place or a more beautiful time of year you have that name showing up more frequently. And this is not, this should not surprise us. These are subjective choices made by human beings, right? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, people have done all kinds of studies showing, you know, how names appear after celebrities or, or hurricanes and things like that, which is very interesting. Um, the, 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 this is mostly a study of the United States, but Canada does come up and it points out that in Canada, uh, autumn is more popular than the name summer, but in places where they don't have those big dramatic autumns, uh, places like Northern Europe and Australia and New Zealand, summer is a more popular name than autumn is. And so they, they believe that it has to do with how 
beautiful our autumns are. So, I mean, we just got through the fall, right? It's feeling like winter. I know technically I don't think winter started yet, but it's we've just gotten through it, uh, the beautiful season of autumn and, and fall, and now we're looking forward to spring. And maybe somebody who's thinking about a baby name is going to be so excited about spring that they go with either the name April, May, or June. And maybe they're listening to you, and they will be influenced by that, and uh, they will uh, take appropriate action based on the weather. Sure. Just just check the temperature and, and see uh, see where it leads you. Don't name your kid, uh, what is it, Cobra Chicken? Cobra that Chicken. That is not a good name for a not kid. Not a good name. Not a good name. Thanks so much for this, Dan. Great to talk to you. Yeah, thank you. All right, that's Dan Riskin. Uh, risking it all for us uh, on studies and things that catch his eye and ours. Uh, always fun to be here. I'm Graham Richardson, just for the one day. And uh, I hope you're having a good Thursday. Um, we certainly are. We're still getting a lot of texts on Christmas, which is great. Um, some people suggesting all sorts of things that they would hold off until Christmas Eve for any of that. Uh, they like my December one. If you come away from, if you come away with nothing from this radio cast, this radio show, although Jazz Beer from Vancouver was excellent on the snow, if you come away with nothing, please come away with this. There is a rule, an unofficial rule, that December one, uh, the Christmas. Uh, decorations and holiday celebrations are officially getting the green light from me. A full month is a lot. A twelfth of the year is a lot. No need to extend it further. You can be thinking about it. That's permitted. You can be thinking about it and anticipating, but you just can't dress up the house. I think that's fair. Thanks for being here. Have a great afternoon, everyone.